Well, good morning, church. If you, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, please open them to Revelation chapter 14. We'll be in Revelation chapter 14 again, verses 6 through 20, as we continue on through this fifth cycle. And uh, really, this, the, the, these verses, this passage is a, a condensed vision of the final judgment with a focus on the endurance of the saints and on the plight of the wicked. Now, last week, we saw the message of the angels, of the first three that precede this. And it was a call for the wicked to repent, that precede final judgment, calling for the wicked to turn from their ways or else. It was a call to those who worship at the altar of the beast, which was everyone outside of Christ. And it was a call for them to turn from that altar, to turn from their worldliness, to turn from uh, the, the beast and to fear the Lord and give Him glory. That's what's happening leading up to this. The kingdom of the world, uh, ruled by the evil one, is now besieged by Christ. Judgment is at the gates and it does not look good for the defenders of iniquity. The walls are about to be breached and the city is about to be overrun, but the Lord in mercy gives them one final opportunity to lay down their arms and be saved. We aren't actually told whether or not they do, or if they do, how many do, but we are told what happens to each group in the end. There are those who are blessed unimaginably, who sided with the Lord, who fear Him and who give Him glory. And there is unspeakable suffering for those who do not. And in verse 12, which is where we'll pick up this morning, in verse 12, we shift to those two eternal realities. At this point, the doors are closed. Fates have been sealed. And this message, glorious to some, dreadful to many, is fulfilled. And what you ought to see in this passage, if there was one overarching point, it's this. God is as dreadful as He is glorious. Just as God is gloriously merciful, just as it is gloriously gracious for Him to save at the last moment, it is gloriously fearful to reject God and then to meet Him. This is why the author of Hebrews warns it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Of course, we know that for some, that hand will be the hand that comforted them, guided them, and held them their entire earthly lives. It's a hand they will kiss, but for others. It will be the hand that wields the rod of iron and crushes them to powder and afflicts them and dismisses them into eternal torment. This is the terrible reality before us in these 15 verses. And so we want to approach this passage, we're going to approach it in two parts. The confidence that judgment gives to the saints and the terror of the judgment on the wicked. And we're not going to get to both today, only the first, but try to keep both of them together as we think about this passage. Revelation 14, 
verses 6 through 20. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all their deeds follow them. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called out with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grapes of the harvest and threw it into the great winepress of God's wrath. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Well, let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would be with us this morning, that You would help me to preach and help us to hear. Lord, You you are as terrifying as You are glorious. It all depends which side of the line that You're on. And I pray that everyone in this room on that day would be found in Christ. Lord, there is no place that is safe outside of Him. There is no place safer than in Christ. Lord, one day all of this world and everything that happens in it, Lord, we will look back on it as one does upon a dream. And it will seem it will seem strange and ethereal in comparison to the reality we enjoy in heaven or suffer in hell. I pray, Lord, that we would prepare for that life, which is truly life and life everlasting. Help us to turn our eyes there this morning through Your Word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, here in this verse, John receives a vision of the fulfillment of many of the parables that Jesus taught in His earthly ministry. You might remember there's the parable of the wheat and the tares where the end comes and the wheat is gathered up and taken into the barn and the tares are gathered up and burned. Or there's the parable of the dragnet when the good fish, uh, the, the net is brought on and the good fish are taken out and stored and the bad fish are taken out of the net and thrown aside. Or there's the parable of the goats and the sheep where they are once for all separated for judgment. But here, it's not a parable. 
What's happening here in the passages we just read in the final judgment is much clearer and more vivid. It's a vision clearer than a parable about a farmer gathering his wheat or a shepherd dividing his herd or a fisherman separating his catch. Here, the vision is clear. And the one thing that I hope you begin to notice as we continue to work through this book of the Revelation is that it increasingly becomes less cryptic and more straightforward. It's still symbolic, of course, but these symbols are increasingly easy to understand, and that is certainly the case here. This is much more vivid a picture of what's happening than the sheep on my right and the goats on my left. It's a vision of the great and terrible division that will take place between the saved and the condemned. Because that's the opposite of saved. It's not lost. All the lost sheep, they're found and brought in. This is between the saved, the redeemed, and the damned. Those destined for eternal life and those for eternal torment. And this division could not be more wonderful and it could not be more terrible. And again, we begin in verse 12. Once more, the, the word a call does not belong. It's not there in the original language. It's not there in the Greek. Instead, it should read, here is the endurance of the saints. So it's not a, it's not a summons to endure. This is the endurance of the saints. And you wonder, well, what is the endurance of the saints? What is it? It's everything in verse 6 through 11. The call to fear God, the assurance of the futility of this world, it's fallen, the promise of destruction for the unrepentant. It isn't just good news for the perishing, it's good news for the church. Judgment is good news for the Christian. You say, why? Because Christians are tempted to fear the world as well. In fact, Christians are probably more tempted to fear the world than the world around you is fearful of what will happen to them in the world. And rightly so. I mean, the world hates Christ. And the more Christ-like you become, the one thing you can be sure of is you will invite more ire from the world. It's a, it's a frightening thing to make a stand against the world. It's a hard thing that Christians are called to. But this passage is meant to give us a a courageous endurance. It's like Athanasius in in the fourth century. He was engaging the Arians. Maybe some of you have heard of Saint Athanasius. He was he was debating the Arians, and the Arians were like the Jehovah's Witness today. They believed, well Jesus isn't God, he is just a divine creature. And if you can believe it, Athanasius was on the minority side. It's how bad things had be become. You think the church is, is, is doing poorly today. But this is nothing new. Back to the 4th century, if you were to go to a church, they wouldn't even believe that Jesus was God. Most of the so-called churches denied the deity of Christ. Athanasius opposed them vigorously. He opposed bishops, judges, even emperors. In fact, there's one story, uh, one story where he was, he was taken to trial and he was accused of 
killing a man named Irenaeus and cutting off his hand and then using that hand for sorcery, magic. His accusers, of course, they fabricated the entire thing and they paid the man Irenaeus to go and hide in a monastery. They said, you go hide there, we'll take him on trial for for killing you and cutting off your hand to practice magic, and then when he's uh, thrown in jail, we'll let you go. Well, Athanasius' friends caught word of it, and they found the supposedly dead man, and they brought him to the trial. And in correspondence about this trial, Athanasius, uh, one of his friends, was writing. He says, at the trial, the accusers produced a human hand to confirm the indictment. But Athanasius was ready. He asked them, in these days you would defend yourself. And Athanasius asked them, did you know Arsenius personally? Yes, they all replied. Yes, we knew him. We knew him. Would you be able to identify him if you saw him? Yes, of course we'd be able to identify him. And so Arsenius was ushered in alive, wrapped in a cloak. They were surprised. But then they demanded an explanation of how he must have lost his hand. Athanasius turned up the cloak on the left, showing one hand was there at least. And after a moment of suspense, he uncovered the other side, revealing the other hand, and asked his accusers to point out when and where the third hand had been cut off. Now you would think that that would be it. But if you're concerned about injustice in the courts today, Athanasius was still found guilty and exiled. Nothing new under the sun, people. But all of this, uh, just to give you a flavor of the kind of opposition he was facing, it was from the judges, from the bishops, from everyone. And at one point, one of his friends came to him and cautioned him and said, The whole world is against you, Athanasius. And he answered, Athanasius contramundum. Then Athanasius is against the world. My question this morning is what enables a Christian to do this? What enables a believer to stand with such a steadfast resolve that even though it seems as though the whole world is against them, they do not budge. Listen, there's only one thing that will do that. There's truly only one. And it is an unwavering confidence in the Word of God. Unwavering. So what do you mean? I mean that you believe that this book is from God that it's authoritative over you and everybody else, and so you believe and yield to everything. It says that's, that's how Athanasius was able to stand like he did. He was convinced with an unshakable conviction of the truth of Scripture, and that enabled him to stand even though everything, from mobs to the clergy to the emperor, were against him. And specifically from our passage this morning, knowing what exactly helps you to stand, is that God says this world and its ways are fallen. Its leaders are doomed. Its hopes are deceitful. And its gods are worthless. 
The world around you might look like it's going up, but the truth is it's going down. And going down fast. And going down hard. And to the degree that you believe that, you will be able to courageously endure. It's it's hard to press forward when you think that in the end there's going to be no justice. That people are going to get away with the evils that they do. I mean, that's why people lose heart, right? When they look in the future, it's hopeless and so they give up. Evil wins, righteousness loses, righteousness loses. What's the point? But that's not what's happening. And as a Christian, you need to believe this. Now, it might look that way, but it's not. Babylon has fallen. The world is under condemnation. The devil is doomed along with all of his ideas and all of his followers. You read it in the Scriptures and you can see glimpses of it in the world around you. You know. Look at the world around you. You know it cannot stand. It's like it's crumbling. This ought to have a profound effect on your courage and your compassion and even on your motivation for godliness. See, that's what characterizes those who endure in verse 12. They keep the commandments. Right? Knowing judgment is coming motivates them to keep the commandments, to live at a maximal level of faithfulness to the Lord. And they keep not the faith, But you see, they keep their faith. They don't doubt what Christ has done for them. They don't doubt His immeasurable value. They don't doubt His worthiness to both live for and suffer for and even die for. Because of the the future that is coming, because of the eternity that will be revealed, they have all the motivation they have to live the Christian life to the fullest, to to the maximal level. And we'll come back to good works soon. But listen, if you truly believe that only what is done for Christ will last, and that heaven is more valuable than earth, and that God is to be feared over man, and that everything else will be destroyed, and that your faithfulness is more precious than your life, if you believe these things, you are not going to be afraid of what the world can do to you. You're going to be fearful of what God's going to do to the world. You will fear for them. And that changes everything. That's what this doctrine of hell and judgment does for the believer. It warns the perishing. It it gives urgency to them to repent. But there is a point for us as well who believe. It gives courage and more. And it reminds me of a story I, I heard. It was from uh, Paul Washer, and he told it of when he was in South America. He was buying some Bibles for some missionaries. He was going to take the Bibles to them. And he was confronted by a corrupt cop. The cop told him his paperwork was invalid, something like that, to extort him. It was a, it was a common practice, he said. In the city where he was, the police used their authority to extort, to rob, to beat people. They just used their authority over you to mistreat you and, and gain for themselves. And so that's what was happening. 
and the cop told him to get back into his, his car, so get into his own car, and start to drive him around. And Paul said, well, he's probably going to just take my car. And so he started to pray until a calmness came over him. He says, we drove around the block a few times. The cop was taunting me, mocking me, threatening me, telling me all the things that he would do to me. And then he called his friends and they screamed. Uh, and then he screamed what he and all his friends could do. And this went on for some time until the cop finally said, stop the car and get out. And so he stopped the car and the cop got up in his face and was shaking his finger and said, why are you so calm? Why are you not saying anything? And so Paul, retelling the story, said, I was praying this whole time, and I really was calm. A peace came over me. And so when he asked the question, I answered, because I am very afraid. And the cop began to laugh. They said, you should be afraid. They said, no, no, you don't understand. I am very afraid for you. Because any minute now, you are going to die, and then you are going to go to hell. And he said, why do you say that? Because the Bible says, he who blesses me, God will bless. But he who curses me, God will curse. And you are under a curse right now because you want to harm me, and you have made God very angry, and he is going to kill you and throw you into hell. Can you imagine? They said the cop started shaking and threw the documents back at him and began to say over and over, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. But you see what I mean? If you believe God, if you believe what He said in His Word, it makes a difference. I mean, don't you want to have that kind of confidence? You say, I read the Bible. Where does it come from? It comes from being heavenly minded. Planting your hopes there. So fixated on the truth of God's Word and His promises that they become more real to you than the ground under your feet or a corrupt official wagging his finger in your face. I mean, that's, that's why I'm preaching. It's not just to inform you so that you can leave thinking, well, that was, that was a, a great, I, I learned something new today. That's not the goal. Our goal meeting together here this morning, that's not it. It's not the goal of prayer. It's not the goal of study. The goal is to make you steadfast and immovable and always excelling in the Lord so that whatever He sends your way, you can face it with an unflinching confidence in Christ. You're like the house built on the rock. When the winds blow and the waters fall and the storm comes and beat against you, you stand. And you stand because you've built your life on the rock of God's Word. Do you believe what God said like this? And if you don't, then don't stop or be content with a kind of half-hearted faith that, well, it acknowledges the truth, it affirms the truth, but then it lives very little in its light. It's like the man who was crossing Niagara Falls on a tightrope. You've probably heard this before. He asked the crowd, who believes that I can make it across? They all cheered. We believe you can get across on this tightrope. And he said, how many of you believe that I could take a wheelbarrow across? Oh yes, we're, we know that you could get it across. How many of you believe that I could carry someone across in the wheelbarrow? Oh yes, we believe that you could do that. 
You can get whoever in this audience you want. Take him across. No problem. And then he asked, well, get in. Nobody came forward. They fervently believed he could do what he said. Or at least they thought they did. But their faith had a limit. They didn't know how low that limit was, but their faith had a limit and they reached that limit a lot faster than most of them probably expected it was going to be reached. Now listen, it may be that you are so fearful and anxious because your circumstances have exceeded the limits of your faith. Because the pressing of the world around you has exceeded the limits of your ability to trust God and His Word. So how much do you believe Him? And we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about the reality of faith. Is your faith small or is it strong? Whatever it is, don't be content to just believe God a little. Aim, run, strive to keep your faith at the maximum level. That is the endurance of the saints. We're living for eternity. We believe what God has said more than our circumstances and more than what our eyes can perceive. And His promises become more real than life itself. It's true. It can happen. You can live that way. This truth is pressed even more on the saints in the next verse. Blessed are who? Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. I mean, blessed indeed. Can you imagine? Write that over your coffin and put it on your tombstone, brothers and sisters. Blessed am I because I died in the Lord and now I rest from all my labors. I mean, this is a person you can't harm, isn't it? This is someone who can't be shaken. The one who loves not his life even unto death so that when death comes... The executioner is there. You know what he's thinking? I am blessed. You see what I mean? Do you believe this? Blessed are those who die in the Lord. And look, there are some verses in the Bible that they don't need to be explained as much as they need to be believed. And this is one of them. Oh, it's hard to believe it, but it's not hard to understand. It is better to die in Christ than to live in this fallen world. How many of us think that way? That the day of our death is better than the day of one's birth if you are in Christ. And so brothers and sisters, you say, how do I do that? Pray for yourselves. Pray that this life would grow dull to you. Not that there isn't joy in it. Not that there isn't vibrancy and, and so many vestiges of the goodness of creation to rejoice in. But this world is fallen. It isn't going to the last. It's not the place to store up treasures. This is where moth and rust destroy. This is where thieves break in and can take everything from you. Everything you find joy in can be annihilated in a night. This is where a fire can turn your home and your loved ones to ashes. And where one day everything will be turned to ash. Does that have a sobering effect? I mean, everything your your hands touch, one day they're going to be gone. Does it make you rethink your priorities at all? 
Does it help you to see why Christ is pleading with His disciples in Matthew 6 to store up treasures in heaven? He doesn't say that for His benefit. It's for you. It's for your good. He says this world, it's not going to last. So store up treasures in heaven and you will enjoy them for eternity. It's the only sensible thing to do if you believe what Jesus says. Store them up for the life to come. And say, how do you do that? You do it with good works. You can't take possessions with you when you go. But look at the end of verse 13. Their good works follow them. There is something you can take with you when you leave this world behind. Good works, like faithfully raising your children in the admonition of the Lord. Like prioritizing prayer with the church even when you don't feel like it. It's a good work, isn't it? Don't grow weary in doing good. Things like selling your possessions and giving to the poor, Luke 12.33. Having those in your home who can never repay you. Striving to live as holy as you can. Separating from the world. I mean, do your hobbies cultivate godliness? You can serve one another. Visit the widow and the infirm. You can and you should grow in your knowledge of the Lord. And then do it. Practice what you know. It's it's not enough just to know it. James says, don't be like those. Somebody who reads the Word and doesn't do it is like a person who looks in the mirror and turns around and forgets what he looks like. But there are lots of good works to be done if they're done in Christ. And if they're done in Christ, they're going to last. They're going to outlast every hobby, every home, every investment, every vacation. And listen, I'm not saying any of those things are bad, but they can be. And for a congregation this size, it's probably true for at least some of you. So how should we live? We should prioritize our lives to store up maximal heavenly treasures. That's one of the effects the awful reality of the day of the Lord should have on believers. Don't put too much stock here because this world is destined for the flames. I mean, imagine Noah building the ark and then building a, building a city right next to it. That's a contradiction of faith, isn't it? Well, is God going to flood the world or is He not? I don't know. I'm doing both. Don't be that way. Don't store up wood and hay and stubble that's going to burn, but get gold and silver and precious stones that will pass through the fire purified. Well, what happens to those who've trusted Christ? They're harvested like choice grains. Verse 14-16. through A fifth messenger comes, and he calls out to the one riding on the, crowd, on, the, on the clouds who has the victor's crown on his head, and he tells him, Put your sickle to the earth. And he does, reaping a great harvest. This is not a harvest of death and judgment. This is a harvest of life. This is Christ coming for His church to gather together all of His own. This is John 4, like we read this morning. They are ripe, not for judgment, but for a harvest of eternal life. And this is what happens to those who fear Him. This is their end. They are blessed. And those who live in Christ 
they are blessed. And those who are gathered when He returns are blessed. It's one word given over and over and over in this passage for those who fear the Lord and give Him glory. They are blessed by Him and they experience that blessedness for all of eternity. They are saved from the destruction of the flames and they are given eternal life. And because of that, listen, because of that, they don't need to fear or be dismayed or be anxious about the future or about anything. They don't. Your, your eternal life is secure. Your footing is solid if you're in Him. Now I want to end by turning your attention to one of my favorite passages. It's in Isaiah 41.10. And it takes everything we've seen here and it puts it in its place. If you're maybe, I'm having a hard time to see how final judgment and the assurance of, of this world being destroyed and the assurance of hell, I don't see how that gives assurance to believers. Well, here you can see it very plainly. Isaiah 41, start in verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's what God calls His people to. Not to be afraid because of Him. Verse 11. Behold, all who are incensed against you will be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you will not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. And you shall thresh the mountains and crush them. And you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away. And the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. This is about the people of God in a hostile world. What is the answer that God gives to bring them to courage? All of those who are angry at the church, who oppose God's people, all of those that tried to confound her and shame her and strove against her to silence her and force her from the public square, they never ultimately were fighting against the church. They were fighting against God. And so God took up arms against them. And they will be put to shame. And they will be confounded. You know what that means? To be confounded? They will be saying, why did we believe the foolish things that we believed? They'll see the error of their ways and their thoughts. 
All of those that seem so powerful and influential today will be as nothing tomorrow and they will perish like chaff blown away by the wind. That ought to be an anchor for a Christian not to put their hand out and grab hold of what the world's offering. It's like grabbing a handful of dust or a handful of chaff. There's no substance. There's nothing to it. A gust of wind and it's gone. This is why in Ephesians it says, anchor yourselves in the Word so that you won't be blown away by every, uh, everyone who comes along with some new idea or doctrine. Here in verse 12 of Isaiah, there will come a day when you can search the heights of mountains and go down to the depths of the sea and you can search every corner of the universe and you will never find an opponent of Christ and God's people will never be opposed Again. Can you imagine? Not a single opponent of Christ in the entire world, in the entire universe. You're on the winning side, brothers and sisters. It has been settled. So don't be fearful. Be faithful. You know what matters in this life. You do. So... You know the things that are going to last. So live for them. You know what is going to happen to those who refuse Christ. So pity them. You know the path of life abundantly. So walk in it. You know the plans that God has for you. So rejoice in them. And be courageous and be fearless for your King. You say, I really have a hard time with this. The Lord will give faith to those who seek Him. And the only thing I can tell you is to seek the Lord until your faith exceeds whatever is troubling it. The Lord will give peace to His people. The Lord will give this kind of faith to those who seek. It might take, it might take three hours a night for four or five months seeking Him. I, let's not pretend it's easy. But if you seek Him with all of your heart, you will find Him. And He will give you His peace. But we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. Uh, and I want to speak briefly about the Lord's Supper before we start. But before we do any of that, let's, let's pray. Lord, thank You for this morning. and Thank You for Your Word. Lord, I pray that You would give courage to Your people. I pray that they would seek You with all of their hearts and that You would become more real to them than all of the things pressing in on them. That Your promises, Lord, would outweigh the trials of this world. That their faith would be strong and would be built up in Christ so that nothing would make them falter or stumble but that they would stand unwaveringly because of You founded on Your Word. Lord, give courage to Your people. Get glory for Your name. Strengthen Your people to endure. And Lord, give us great confidence and assurance and faith in Christ so that Lord, we would be like the people eager to jump into the wheelbarrow because we know that You can get us to the other side. 
We know what's going to happen to this world, Lord. Help us not to put our stock too much in it. Lord, let us have our hands in the world no more than is necessary to fulfill what You have called us to do in this world. But God, let our hearts be in heaven and our minds fixed there on You, on the new heavens and the new earth where we will spend eternity. Fix us there, Father. For our good and for Your glory. Amen.